Peloton's best offer of the season is here. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Choose from a variety of accessories, like our cycling shoes, a heart rate monitor, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. This limited-time offer ends November 28th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer starts November 14th and ends November 28th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Welcome once again to High Desert Radio, the voice of the Jewish Federation of New Mexico. I'm David Wolf. Today, Federation Executive Director Zach Benjamin sits down with Behnam Ben Talablu, Senior Iran Analyst at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, to discuss the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, better known as the Iran Nuclear Deal, two years after its adoption. Even now, American Jews are still divided over the deal's effectiveness and whether it has eased or exacerbated the threat Iran poses to the Sunni Gulf states, Israel, and the United States. Today, we'll receive an update on the status of the deal and its impact on the broader Middle East. We'll discuss how Iran's behavior under the deal has influenced the activities of other regional actors, how the deal has impacted Iran's ability to fund Hamas and other terrorist organizations, and whether a possible renegotiation of the deal would mitigate Iran's rise as a threat to its adversaries. Here's Zachary Benjamin. Bethnam Ben Taleblu from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. We're we're quite pleased to have you uh, with us today. Uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies is a fantastic organization, and uh, uh, we've worked with some of uh, your colleagues before, and uh, many of our sister organizations have as well. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to wish all of our listeners a belated uh, Shana Tova. Um, Certainly all of us at Federation hope you had a sweet new year and a uh, reflective um, and restorative Yom Kippur. Um, but here we are. We're back at it. Uh, very pleased to have senior Iran, uh, Iran analyst Bethnam Ben Taleblu uh, with us from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Bethnam, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me and for the th- kind words about FED. Uh, I totally agree. It's been five years here at the Foundation and uh, uh, been loving the team that I work with and glad they got to work with the Federation and its branches. Well, we're pleased to have you. And uh, last year, uh, Jonathan Shanzer uh, visited our community and spoke at an event here, and um, we had a wonderful conversation over brunch before his presentation. And so when we established this new High Desert Radio podcast, uh, one of the uh, first thoughts that came to mind was having someone from your organization provide us with an update on, on regional affairs. It's certainly an interesting time, so so we're pleased to have you. Uh, jumping right in, uh, today I think the gist of our conversation is going to be uh, really an update on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran deal. Um, you know, we're about two years in now, um, and uh, of course there are strong feelings on both sides of the spectrum really about its success, uh, where it's failed, uh, what work needs to be done, and with a new administration now in place and now actually close to a year into the uh, Trump administration with a better idea of, of where they're headed and where their uh, heads are at, I think it's timely to have uh, an update really of where we are. So I think just to start, um, maybe just give us a kind of brief report card on uh, the JCPOA, which aspects, uh, if any, have been successful, um, which have failed, and regionally kind of what this all means, big picture. Sure. Well, first and foremost, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was a uh, 
inked after a little over two and a half years of nuclear negotiations between Iran and the P5 plus one. And the P5 plus one are the five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany. So that's, you know, the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, Russia, China. Uh, and then they all negotiated with Iran, and they had this EU interlocutor um, that was basically based off of the framework for previous negotiations between the EU and Iran, uh, some of which that happened in 2003-2005, and then some of which that happened after 2008. And then once the U.S. formally uh, embedded itself into this mechanism, the P5 plus one community really uh, congealed. And they sought this deal based on a flawed deal, unfortunately, that they had inked in November 2013, and that was called the Joint Plan of Action Nuclear Deal. And, you know, I think that deal... Uh, really set us up for the deal that we have today. That deal, unfortunately, did not deal with Iran's ongoing enrichment problem. It dealt with a small portion of Iran's uh, enrichment capability, the 20% uranium, and basically set the predicate for the U.S. to trade sanctions relief for limited time-sensitive nuclear concessions by Iran. Ultimately, the best argument in favor of this deal is that it's a time-delaying mechanism. It kicks the can down the road several years. Unfortunately, in my view, and in the view of several other analysts in this town, I think the cost with, with which it kicks the can down the road is too high because, you know, a deal is not about the day you ink it. The deal is always about the day after. You know, with a deal comes implementation challenges. And even under a great deal, you will have implementation challenges. But in a flawed deal, in a fatally flawed deal, as H.R. McMaster uh, has recently called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, you're going to have even more challenges because over time, the U.S. loses economic leverage. And over time, Iran's nuclear program is not only legalized and kind of given this blessing of legitimacy by the international community, but uh, it's allowed to become more robust and they're allowed to do things under the auspices of the deal in a limited fashion that could ultimately set it up to actually have that nuclear weapons capability uh, with which we're looking to uh, denude Iran of. So this is, this is the predicate for which the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear deal came about. As you know, it was attained on July, 24, uh, July 2015. Uh, a Security Council resolution called 2231 was passed unanimously a few days later, codifying and enshrining this, and implementation occurred in January 2016. And here we are in, like you said, two years into the deal, and there's debates over Iranian violations of the spirit and letter of the deal. First of all, there is this artificial divide between the spirit and the letter because the deal is so poorly written. You don't have members of the P5 plus one all developing a unified interpretation of the deal. Then you have, unfortunately, some not great reporting that leads to confusion. You may have seen headlines or your members may have seen headlines that the IAEA is saying Iran is in compliance with the deal. That is actually not the, what the IAEA is supposed to do. The IAEA isn't tasked with monitoring and verifying Iran's adherence to the broad technical contours of the deal. It only assesses Iran's compliance with this other accord called the Additional Protocol, which Iran is only voluntarily implementing under the auspices of the JCPOA. Compliance is actually a national decision based on every party that is a member of the deal and an international decision uh, attained by the Joint Commission, which is a body created by the deal that meets every so month to address implementation issues. So there's been much debate over this deal, and there is a debate now in Washington over the future of the deal and if the new administration will decertify Iran, Iran's compliance with the deal as well as kick the issue back to Congress and will it continue to waive sanctions. And so that's the state of play that we've reached now. 
So uh, to follow up um, with that answer, we know that Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel met with Prime Minister May of Great Britain this week and discussed, among many other things, the status of the deal and the likelihood or lack thereof that uh, the uh, P5 plus one would be amenable to rethinking the deal uh, or perhaps uh, as a penalty uh, for Iran's malfeasance, pulling back to some degree on the deal. And, and of course, Prime Minister May felt that that wasn't on the table at this time. Is that truly the case? Is there any scenario under which you see either the U.S. unilaterally or the P5 plus one collaboratively um, either pulling back uh, and implementing some punitive measures or uh, pulling out of the deal entirely? You know, I think the first thing I want to say is that the debate over decertification, that, you know, even Iran, you know, members of the Iranian foreign ministry, including and up to Mohammad Javad Zarif, their eloquent but cunning Iranian foreign minister, has called this entire debate over certification and not certification an internal matter, an internal procedure. And why I think that's important is that we shouldn't do the heavy lifting of the Iranians for them. We shouldn't do the diplomacy of the Iranians for them. And we shouldn't, like, win diplomatic successes for this type of regime. And so uh, the reason I'm saying that is because if they don't see our debates over certification to be a problem, then we certainly, and our allies certainly shouldn't see that. And that's unfortunate because most of our allies, unfortunately, across the pond, have bought into the Iranian narrative that decertification is akin to a withdrawal from the deal. And that's not, you know, talking about the president decertifying Iran's compliance pursuant to the Iran Nuclear Review Act of this deal uh, is not at all like pulling out of the Paris Accords unilaterally. And it's not a unilateral measure. It's simply something that it pertains to, you know, you, existing U.S. legislation on how the president is supposed to be waiving sanctions and how the president determines Iran is compliant and how the, pre the president determines if remaining in the deal is in the U.S. national security interests. So this is, this is a, a very nuanced debate that has been in the media and across the pond been unfortunately somewhat misunderstood. And I think it's unhelpful because Iran is using this dissonance to exploit an existing cleavage between, you know, the transatlantic community where there may not have actually been one. You saw at the UNGA in September, both President Trump and President Macron of France, both of them hit on Iran's ballistic missile program. And I think this unity between the U.S. and Europe over fears of Iran's ballistic missiles, that this should have been included in the deal, it unfortunately wasn't, this unity could be used with some creative pressure, mind you, to perhaps, you know, renegotiate parts of the deal or, you know, put the deal aside and to get a new deal, something, perhaps a new deal on missiles. So where there is unity, Iran is trying to create dissonance. But there is unity because they all know the nature of the threats the Islamic Republic poses. You have your nuclear threats and your non-nuclear threats. And unfortunately, this deal only attempts to deal with the non-nuclear threats. And that leaves a space for the U.S. to creatively find a way to deal with non-nuclear threats. Thank you. I appreciate that. Actually, I think it's important to draw this distinction between the cancellation of the deal or the concept of cancellation of the deal and and the ability to maneuver within the deal in ways that hold Iran accountable for their actions. And I think we, we recently saw the passage of the Iran Sanctions Act, which simply provides access to those quote-unquote snapback sanctions. And I do think it's an important distinction that you've made here. Um, that negotiating within the terms of the deal does not doesn't cancel the deal, uh, and certainly doesn't necessarily withdraw okay. it. Um, and that most don't understand that there are conditions in place for uh, additional negotiations with the deal in place. 
And looking, and, and you know, one of the hardest things to do in, in Washington right now is, is to not necessarily take a stance on certification or decertification, is to take a stance on actually enforcing the deal as it is. You know, earlier you had mentioned, does the deal have any saving graces? There's a, there's a section in the first annex of the deal, which is the nuclear annex of the deal, uh, Section T, that deals with weaponization-related research and technology and design. So activities like X-ray cameras that Iran has can't be used for nuclear weapons-related purposes. But the way we are currently set up right now, without access to certain military sites, without access to certain scientific individuals in, in Iran's overall like scientific community, we won't be able to actually verify even clauses that exist in this flawed deal. And so when people say that any attempt to fix the deal or any attempt to enforce the deal is really just like a, a secret way of killing it, I think that's highly offensive because there are things in the deal that are already good that we are trying to fix. And it's a shame that I think some members of the international community and some in Washington continue to see any attempt to improve the deal, any attempt to actually use coercive diplomacy, any attempt to use creativity to resolve the Iranian nuclear issue as a way to simply undermine it. Sure. And, and to some extent, that rhetoric, that's a rhetorical uh, device similar to what we saw during the debate over the deal itself, which uh, certainly in our community was substantive, um, certainly was a necessary conversation to be had. But there were those who attempted to create essentially a bilateral construction of the um, deal, either of the world with or without a deal, either um, a deal is in place to uh, keep a, um, a, a check on Iran's um, ability to threaten the region and, and the U.S. Um, and Israel, um, or uh, we were going to war and there, were, there, was no, um, there was no nuance. So I think this is probably an extension of those uh, same rhetorical devices. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, I'm particularly interested in in the ripple effect that the JCPOA has had, and, and, and particularly Iran's inability to comply with certain elements of it has had uh, on the region um, writ large. Uh, we've seen a fascinating standoff uh, between Qatar and the Arab League. Uh, Qatar, of course, is well known to be um, one of the chief allies of Iran, one of the chief state sponsors of uh, Hamas and Hezbollah which themselves are heavily funded by Iran. We see Turkey uh, and other actors positioning themselves as well. So I, I think the first question is, what are the key chess pieces that have been moved as a result uh, of these of, of the, the deal and its relative success or lack thereof, um, meaning which state and non-state actors um, have made the most significant moves? And uh, secondly, is the Arab League and the Sunni states, Gulf states, an effective bulwark against some of the uh, weaknesses in the deal? Well, that's a great question. And I think just to be able to, to do that, we need a bit of a, a 50,000 feet perspective of the order of battle and the alliances and enmities that existed in the Middle East uh, right up to the deal. And I like to say that there were almost three axes that you could find. You saw the pro-American, and, and these axes are not about necessarily ideology, they're about orientation. So that, that's how you see Israel and Saudi Arabia in the same block. That's the, the pro-American status quo block. That's the first block. Most of the GCC states that are pro-American in terms of at least foreign and security policy, with the exception of Qatar, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, these kind of countries. Then you had the second, which was the, the, the main, you know, the axis, if you will, which is the resistance axis or the revolutionary axis that Iran calls it, which is Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon because of Hezbollah, and then their attempts to try to get Yemen 
through the Houthis and their attempt to subvert Bahrain through you know armed groups like Saraya Lashtar. Um, so this is these are these were the, the two main camps. You had the pro-American camp, which is the status quo camp, and then you had the anti-American camp, which is the Iranian-led camp. And then you had two very creative. Uh, I, I believe John actually coined this term: neither allies nor enemies, frenemies uh, of Turkey and Qatar. And both these kind of countries had been playing footsie with Iran for quite a while, even though they were part of larger camps that were actually checking Iran. So Turkey is a NATO member, and NATO is not necessarily with Iran. And Qatar was part of the GCC, and the GCC overall has, has more of a checking posture against Iran. Um, but both these countries have been playing footsie with Tehran through, you know, sanctions-busting schemes, through, uh, as you know, with, with Qatar, for the hosting uh, entities like Hamas, you know, that Iran is friendly with, and engaging in behavior through illicit financial activities and engaging in behavior in terms of norms and values that the U.S. found to be at odds with itself. So you had the, and they tended to support uh, abroad Muslim Brotherhood-type organizations. Um, so you see these three different axes emerge. And then with the Iran nuclear deal coming into play in summer 2015, you still see these two camps, the Iran camp and then the Saudi-Israel camp, the pro-American and anti-American camp, if you will, and they kind of solidify. And even though most of the GCC countries that are in that pro-American camp had to give lip service publicly to, oh, yes, the nuclear deal is good, I think privately everybody in this town could tell you that, you know, it's no secret the Arab states of the Persian Gulf are upset with the U.S. over its handling of the, the nuclear diplomacy with Iran, over basically giving away the whole store to Iran, and then they felt the need to be bulked up, and that's when they engage on much of their arms purchases. Pivoting to Qatar more specifically, you know, Qatar has had for a couple of years now this ongoing rivalry with Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia is basically believed to be the head of this GCC bloc. Qatar has sought to check that. You saw in terms of satellite diplomacy, Qatar's famous channel, Al Jazeera, uh, did a lot to spread its narrative and its invective, I would say, during the Arab Spring. The different Arab states backed different factions in key battlegrounds like Egypt. A success for Sisi uh, was seen as part of the pro-American camp or the, uh, the pro-status quo camp with Saudi Arabia, the Brotherhood. That was seen the vindication of the Qatar faction. But then on Iran, they have been at loggerheads with Iran, but Iran hasn't been able to covet the Qatar relationship until very recently. Now they're constantly saying, oh, we're the ones providing, airspace, providing our airspace to Qatari planes. Qatar is being starved. And so Iranian English language outlets like Press TV are re-upping the narrative that Qatar has been upping uh, about its own behavior in the region. And I'd like to, at some point, take a closer look at, at Turkey as well. But just as a follow-up to uh, this, to Qatar as um, somewhat of a, a linchpin in um, Iran's regional influence, uh, we know, you know, of course, uh, Qatar is a close ally of Iran. Um, we know that money, resources are flowing from Qatar uh, to Hamas, um, certainly to Hezbollah. Um, but on the other side of the coin, uh, the U.S. still um, maintains its uh, Al Udaid air base in Qatar, um, which houses much of our central command, uh, the regional command. How does this create a bit of a conundrum for the U.S. and its allies in um, taking a, a harder line against Iran, if at all? Or, is it, or are they two separate issues? On that front, I, I probably wouldn't be the best person to speak to on this, but I, I know there's been a couple of great FED 
reports about looking at Qatar's role in terror finance and, and illicit finance. And the, you know, the broader question is, if this country is part of uh, you know, the U.S. security architecture, how could it continue to do X, Y, Z things on illicit finance, on terms of you know, human rights, and in, in, in terms of its regional posture? Because ultimately the question is, is this country that's housing U.S. military and diplomatic facilities in the U.S. orbit, or is it playing footsie with a larger state sponsor of terrorism, Iran? Or is it playing footsie with you know, groups like Hamas by hosting Khaled Mashal? I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. everyone knows about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on the Hezbollah stuff, uh, I, d- I don't know the extent of you know, there's Qatar's support to Lebanese Hezbollah, if at all. So, uh, you know, I won't comment on that. But I think that, you know, now is the time for the U.S. to begin to ask, to begin asking itself these questions, these cost-benefit questions. I personally am not the one to be able to answer it as best as I can, because I, again, I kind of have that zero-in focus on Iran. And when, when we pivot out to the region, I, I you know, I'm, I'm much more versed in these, you know, pro-American, anti-American orientation dynamics than, you know, What's sure. Qatar's role in the campaign against ISIS? What's Qatar's role in the campaign against the Houthis versus, you know, its effectivity in being a check on Iran, which I think is quite weak. Um, but I, there are some great FD resources I can point you and some of your members to. So uh, I'd like to take a closer look at, at Turkey. Um, again, another ally of Iran, certainly another, as you um, and Jonathan um, so aptly put it, a frenemy uh, of the U.S. Uh, and, and Israel um, of late. Uh, we know that they've been moving for a number of years in a more hardline direction under Prime Minister Erdogan. How has the JCPOA specifically influenced Turkey, Turkey's actions, uh, and where do you see Turkey headed uh, over the course of the next several, several years, assuming the deal remains intact? And, and I, I guess I mean uh, Turkey's relationship with Israel, Turkey's relationship with the United States. Um, are those uh, relationships from a security standpoint, from the sharing of intelligence, um, in jeopardy? Um, and uh, uh, is Turkey holding some of its um, expertise, uh, if it if it has any, uh, um, in terms of again intelligence um, and uh, and other resources, essentially hostage, based on the Iran deal and the uh, U.S.'s posture towards Iran. You know, I, I can't necessarily say that the Iran deal has caused all of these things in, in the in the shift in Turkey's domestic politics and foreign posture. But you know, the Iran deal's advent and implementation neatly correlates with this ongoing trend since the AKP came into power, and more so since you saw this increasing authoritarian streak in Erdogan himself, uh, which is this increasing Islamization of of, of the Turkish Republic. Uh, stuff that you know, Ataturk, if he was alive today, would be <laughs> would be kicking himself for. And things that would put the rest of NATO members who kind of put their faith in Turkey because, again, you know, it has the second largest army in NATO and, you know, it's a buffer. It's, it's got shares a land border with Syria. There's the whole refugee crisis. There's the question of treatment of jihadist fighters. There's all these different questions that we have uh, vis-a-vis Turkey. There's this recent desire to purchase, you know, the S-400 SAM system. And is that, is that really giving, for lack of a better word, a finger to the United States? Because this is, again, a NATO-allied country. Why is it buying military hardware that will not be interoperable with existing Western hardware in Turkey. So these are raising all these red flags about just the direction Turkey is going in that don't necessarily have to do with the JCPOA. But Turkey is, as you know, energy starved. Ties with Russia have to do with energy. Ties with Tehran definitely have to do with energy. And Tehran and and, uh, Ankara have looked to kind of increase their ties together, particularly to raise their, their, their joint trade balance. But there are things in the region that continue to put them apart, such as Syria. Increasingly, though, Iran 
has been able to kind of get Turkey to buy in to some of its regional maneuvering. You know, in 2015, Erdogan called Iran this, this destabilizing force in the region. But with the advent of the coup, I think this is a more critical moment in Turkish-Iranian relations than the JCPOA. Because with the advent of the coup uh, in the summer of 2016, which, as you know, was botched and failed, Iran, unlike the United States, did not waffle and unequivocally threw its support behind Erdogan. And there's a quote from Qasem Soleimani, the major general of Iran's uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force. And uh, this is a quote he said in relation to Iraq and Syria, I think, in the you know, 20, early 2010s. But he said, we're not like the Americans. We don't abandon our friends. So in that moment where Erdogan was looking abroad to NATO, to John Kerry in the West uh, for support at, during the coup, it was Tehran that rushed to their aid and said, no, we, we fully back the Erdogan government. And that was a very salient moment, I would say, for Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And salient moment in the sense that that moment, I'm sure, was playing in his head as he was in Tehran uh, a week or so ago. And that moment was in his head when, you know, you saw the flurry of military diplomatic activity between the two countries looking to check an increasingly nationalist Kurdish population in Iraq with a referendum from September 25th, from September 25th of uh, this year. So while the JCPOA may ultimately alter the macro trends of Turkey's ties to Iran because it'll say, hey, the sanctions are off, you can't accuse us of sanctions busting, you can't accuse our banks and our businessmen of sanctions busting, it'll, it'll kind of reinforce that mercantilist policy. But there are other softer geopolitical non-economic things, things like Iran's support for Turkey during the coup, things like Iran's charm offensive to get them more on board with the ceasefire zones in Syria that Russia is also pushing, and things like Iran's ability to exploit Turkish fears about her independent Kurdistan that will ultimately take our NATO partner, Turkey, and make it drift a bit more towards Tehran. Uh, to follow up before we move on to our final question, you mentioned certainly the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey um, changing as, of course, Turkey's posture uh, uh, pivots in a more uh, Islamist, I guess you could say, direction. During the first term of the Obama administration, President Obama was quite clear that um, Erdogan was perhaps the the leader in the region uh, with whom he had the closest relationship, uh, one that he uh, trusted to help guide him in the early days of his presidency. Um, and, you know, of course, at the time, uh, perhaps there was no anticipating um, the hard line direction that, that Erdogan would take uh, later on, um, certainly in, in the um, Obama presidency and into the Trump presidency. Did that relationship, the early close connection between uh, President Obama and, and Prime Minister Erdogan um, impact at all, uh, either help soften the U.S.-Turkey relationship as Turkey pivoted uh, away from the U.S., or uh, did it perhaps tie the U.S.'s hands in being able to censure Turkey and act as a, as a buffer for the NATO states um, against Turkey's um, turn towards uh, towards the right? So, so this question, I think, may require a bit more of a of an of a independent Turkey expert, someone who you know speaks Turkish and know, knows the nuances of Turkish domestic politics, to be able to answer better than I. But but what I can tell you is that in the U.S., definitely there was this desire to see something and to project something. More importantly, 
onto Erdogan that may not have been there to begin with. You know, you mentioned Obama's reset with the region in 2009 and, you know, looking to not necessarily follow in the footsteps of President Bush, who, you know, there was the warm embrace of America's traditional partners, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the desire to save Iraq, and the desire to check Iran. And Obama had, as you know, a very different approach to the region coming into the office. And that's why I think the appeal of this kind of this this nascent Islamizing this nascent Islam Islamic country that was not an Islamic state yet then Turkey was a NATO ally it was this bridge between East and West there were all these reasons I think for the Obama administration to want to read in more of their narrative of the region uh, into Erdogan into the AKP's rise and into into Turkey's success in the region and to be vested in Turkey's success into the region than I think ever before and that that may I think you know again. A Turkey expert will be able to tell you if this is more causal or correlative, but that may have actually hindered some of our ability to be firm with Turkey when we needed to. I think you know, good friends show tough love, whether it's the U.S.-Israel relationship, whether it's the uh, Iran-Russia relationship, mm-hmm. whether it's the mm-hmm. China-North uh, Korea relationship. Sure. You know, doesn't matter what the ori- ideological orientation is. If you're a good friend, you'll tell it like it is. And, and I, I think we we may have indulged Erdogan a bit. Again, I, I won't comment on uh, to the depth of that, but there was definitely a desire in Washington in the 2009 to 2012, not limited to the administration, mind you, to much of the open source and analytical community, to read so much into Erdogan, to project so much onto Erdogan that may not have been there. And I, I think that that's unfortunate because the way things moved in the region with the Arab Spring and the dissonance, uh, the increasing dissonance of values and interests that we've had with Turkey over time have only been reinforced. And one wonders if we could have stopped this or if we could have had a hand in at least stemming some of this before. Uh, you know, it's a question historians will debate. They'll say hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think at this level, one can only wonder as an American. Okay, so uh, wrapping it up, I think just kind of putting it all together, um, can you maybe project out uh, between now and um, say, uh, well, we can say between now and the end of the um, uh, lifetime of the deal, the um, 15 year time frame, what does this all mean for the U.S. and our national security and Israel and its security? And um, kind of, can you give us a, a quick best case and worst case scenario, most real, you know, realistic best case and worst case scenario for um, both uh, the U.S., Israel, um, with regard to Iran? You know, uh, at the macro level, I unfortunately don't see any best cases in the short to medium term for the United States. It requires significant investment in, unfortunately, a lot of theaters of conflict that many Americans may not want to see more blood and treasure go towards, such as the Syrian conflict or at least the fight to rid ISIS of Iraq of ISIS, but then also rebuilding Iraq, and then as well as the, the, the ongoing U.S. and ISAF mission in Afghanistan. There are all these different things that will, will have a macro-level effect on that calculus. But with, with respect to the deal and the timeline, should the deal hold, you know, have Iran, you know, if there's no major Iranian violation, no material breach, that kind of thing, no new uh, nuclear sanctions imposed on Iran, that kind of, if you're, if you're going in that kind of vein, one of my fears is that we actually keep the deal as is, no renegotiation, Iran ups its pressure, we up our pressure, U.S. Israel, uh, U.S. Israeli ties slowly get solidified, Saudi Israeli ties grow in the dark. There's all this great, you know, background stuff going on, but then ultimately there is this macro-level deal that lapses, and then after 10 to 15 years, we realize that Iran has a, you know, 
minimal to nothing breakout timeline and is a screwdriver turn away from a nuclear weapon. And the worst thing I think that would happen then is we would discover some sort of Iranian military facility or Iran may have some incentive to, to develop something or test something because the, you know, the capability is now all there because of this deal that doesn't do what it promised it would do. And the region is left, uh, is left to its own devices because I think there may be uh, you know, I'm not speaking for this administration, but and the last administration and the administration beforehand, but there are ups and downs in in the the depth of the U.S. presence in the region and the level of commitment the U.S. wants to have to the Middle East. And you know, one only wonders that at a time when Iran would be increasingly emboldened in the region, and that Iran would be increasingly uh, vindicated in terms of its narrative and ideology of resistance in the region. You know, it wins in Syria. It wins on the end of the nuclear deal. It gets to have, you know, some kind of expeditionary force on the Golan Heights. It gets to have Saudi Arabia and Israel look like the marginalized actors in the region. It gets to have this NATO country, Turkey, drift towards it faster than ever before. That That's a lot for the U.S. to contend with, especially when you talk about a ballistic missile embargo lapsing on Iran by 2023 and an arms embargo lapsing on Iran by 2020 with Russian and Chinese conventional weaponry pouring into Iran. These are all major fears. This is obviously a worst-case scenario. How to turn that on its head and make a best-case scenario, you know, the recommendations I would give, you'd need to have to start yesterday. You know, you need to work with Europe to, to find a way to renegotiate the accord or, or to fix the accord or at best, you know, get a follow-on agreement on some of the other threats Iran poses, fix the sunset clauses so you're not hampered in by this 10 to 15-year thing. Uh, I think, you know, many people who even negotiated the deal, they are worried about the sunset clauses in the deal making the Iran agreement terminate on their watch or on the watch of their political party, for instance, and they don't want that. And so there is momentum now to get pressure to renegotiate, to get Iran to renegotiate some of these sunset clauses. Um, if that happens, great. You know, if Israel is able to deepen its relationship with some of the Arab states in the periphery, you know, that would be great. But the question is to me, at what cost right now? Because an increasingly molded Iran, one that is not checked across the region, one that doesn't really have its nuclear program frozen and rolled back, then then we're back in the world of playing a delaying game again. And, and whatever success we could read into that and the alliances that would form or the balancing coalitions that would form, it would still come at a very high cost. And ultimately, Iran is a country which under two different regimes has pursued a nuclear program and has had a nu an interest in a nuclear capability in one shape or another since 1959, in a pro-American direction until 79 and in an anti-American direction since 79. I think a strategic victory for the Islamic Republic would be to say one day that they have a nuclear weapons capability and that despite all of this balancing, despite all of these coalitions, despite all of the sanctions and the pressure and the alliances and the intel sharing, that a country like the Islamic Republic somehow bested the rest of the international community. And I think that would be a strategic setback. Bethnam Ben Talablu, senior Iran analyst uh, with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Thank you so much. This is a fascinating uh, and ongoing um, uh, topic and certainly timely and will remain so. I have a feeling we're going to be revisiting this uh, with you over the course of the coming years. For now, thank you so much for uh, the update, for the expertise, uh, and uh, we hope to have you back here again on High Desert Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry to have ended on a, on a negative note, but I think that only underscores the, the sense of urgency that exists to, to fix the deal and to improve the U.S. and our allies and partners' position in the region so that we can offset uh, that possibility as far as possible and as best as possible.
Absolutely. I think it's it's not negative, it's realistic, and um, I think it's important for those of us who have a vested interest in the region to know what we're facing and um, you know what our, our leadership um, is facing in terms of the, the decisions that have to be made uh, right now and into the future. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. That's it for this edition of High Desert Radio. Thanks so much for listening. High Desert Radio is the voice of the Jewish Federation of New Mexico. Remember, in order for us to continue providing quality programs like High Desert Radio and to continue our work in service to Jewish seniors, Holocaust survivors, low-income families, children, young professionals, Israel, and more, the Jewish Federation of New Mexico relies entirely on the generosity of listeners like you. Make your contribution today to jewishnewmexico.org. Remember, you can subscribe to this series on iTunes and be sure to visit us at jewishnewmexico.org. Till next time, for High Desert Radio, I'm David Wolf. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.